We're back in Romans this morning. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage uh, this Sunday uh, and then two weeks from today, so we'll be here for, for a little while. Uh, I'm thinking that b- by the time we get to our summer break, we'll probably be somewhere in the middle of chapter 7. And so we're going we're gonna to continue on this morning uh, in chapter 6, the, the latter half, verses 15 through 23, which I'll read in just a minute. Uh, Paul in chapter 6 of Romans is concerned about us understanding the transition which the gospel brings about in our lives. So if you're here this morning, you say, I've I've come to Christ for salvation. I've put my faith in Jesus, and and I'm a disciple of his. I'm following his. Uh, You've transitioned from what Paul calls the the old self to the new self. Uh, And and you're somewhere in that journey of uh, the new self grabbing a deeper hold of you. Uh, but you may be here this morning saying, well, I, I don't know Jesus the Savior. I'm here checking it out. I'm um, thinking about it. I'm not sure. Maybe I have more questions than answers. Uh, you would be maybe at the very beginning of a potential transition in your life. But Paul wants us to understand clearly that there was an old way, an old life, an old self, so to speak. And there is now uh, that we are in Christ, there is a new life. So when I was apart from Christ, it was kind of the old me. In Christ, it's the new me. Uh, What Paul is saying is that salvation brings about a new way of thinking about myself and about God and about others, which leads to a changed behavior. In other words, thinking, new way of thinking leads to a new way of living. So the question we're going to consider this morning is, do we get that? Now, again, you may be very confident to say, of course, I know exactly what it means to be alive in Christ, and I live that way every day of my life. I would guess that for most of us, if not all of us, we're somewhere in that transition where we've understood some part of it, but we still wrestle with our old identity. I was talking to a friend uh, a couple weeks ago about this passage, and he pointed me uh, back again to the life of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was one of the most influential people in the history of the United States. He was born a slave in the mid-1850s. Uh, was set free, obviously, at the end of the Civil War. But then for most of his adult life, he was learning how to live as a person of freedom. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that that Booker Washington from about 1890 to 1915 was probably the most dominant figure in African-American culture and one of the most influential people in our culture as a whole. He spoke on the question of race relations and what it meant Uh, for African-Americans who had formerly been slaves to be engrafted into the United States community as a whole. And yet some of his critics uh, later on uh, in life said that perhaps he didn't take the argument far enough. Perhaps he was still wrestling with the earlier identity of his life in being a slave. In 1895, Booker Booker T. Washington addressed a convention in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm going to put just a a couple of quotes on the screen because I think it will help us understand where the critics were coming from and what what they were sensing and what they were seeing. In 1895, he said, our greatest danger, he's talking about, he's talking about African Americans, is that the great leap from slavery to freedom, we may overlook the fact that the masses of us are to live by the productions of our hands. Now, Again, we have never been enslaved. Every person in this room, to my knowledge, unless you were born in a different country and have immigrated to the United States, you have been born free. I have been born free. We can appreciate the fact that there are lots of folks that earn their living with their hands. And in Booker T. Washington's day and age, we were still very much an agrarian society. We still were people of the country. We were still a nation of farmers primarily. 
And so we could look at that and go, well, that's not all that offensive. But think about it from the view of someone who had been a slave. You're saying to me that the best that I can ever do is just work with my hands? You're saying that I can't be educated, that I can't uh, be able to, to advance in my culture the same as someone else? So you can see where there may be some questions there. There's a couple of other ones, just real quick. The wisest among my race understand that the agitation of the questions of social equality is the extremist folly. Washington was saying, we have bigger fish to fry, so to speak, than to deal with the issue of social equality. That would be offensive uh, to everyone today who is concerned about social equality. He went on to say, in all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. The idea that, that actually was dealt with later on in the 1960s, this question of separate but equal. So I don't put this on the screen to, to in any way be critical of Booker T. Washington. I think in many respects, his generation were the, were the grandparents of the social rights issue. His generation really began to address this issue as the first group of African Americans who were free. So I'm not being critical. My only point is that I think that this was a journey for Booker T. Washington. He was struggling to learn to live and to think as a free man. What Paul is addressing in this passage is the spiritual struggle that you and I have to live to think as spiritually free men and women in Christ. I think we're on a similar journey as a journey that Washington found himself on when it came to social issues. With that in mind, Romans chapter 6, this question of slavery to freedom, starting in verse 15 and reading through verse 23, hear the word of God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the, te- uh, the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now you have been set free. From sin, and it becomes slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the the children leading us in worship. When I'm down, you lift me up. Lord, that is the the work of redemption, taking people out of brokenness and and sin and the condemnation that we deserve because we have rebelled against you and giving us new life in Christ. Father, the the early annals of our history as a country uh, are stained with the question of slavery. No one deserves to be a slave. 
And yet, Father, that's the identity you place upon us when you want us to understand how deep and serious our condition is apart from Christ. And we ought not be offended that you use this language. Rather, it should cause us to pause and to think of how deeply we need a Savior, how deeply we need to be spiritually emancipated from the shackles of sin and death. And so, Father, as we come to this text, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds. Father, I can't do justice to explain this to to the people gathered in this room. Lord, you know my own sin would keep me and stand in the way and prohibit me from explaining this clearly. So, Father, I pray for your forgiveness in Christ. I pray that you would speak your word to us this morning. We don't need my opinion. We don't need to hear what I have to say. Lord, we need the very word of God to penetrate our hearts and our souls as only you can. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I think that Paul's chief concern in this passage is that disciples embrace new life in Christ. Not just that we give intellectual assent to it, but that we actually wholeheartedly grab onto it, so to speak, for uh, all we're worth. The reality is that if, if you're a follower of Jesus, that if you have put your faith in what, in what he did on the cross, his death and his resurrection on your behalf, you have been set free in Christ. That's the reality in which you now live. But we all know the reality in which we all live also means that we don't always live in that truth, right? There are some times when we slip back into this spiritually uh, slavish mental way of thinking, approach to life. And so there, there is a bit of a learning curve for every disciple. Discipleship really is a lifelong journey of transformation, the end of which is when we see Christ face to face. But in the meantime, where we're headed is uh, looking more and more like people who have been spiritually set free and living less and less in the, in the old sinful uh, slavery in which we found ourselves. So the question that we want to ask this morning really is that Paul is asking is where are we in the process? Uh, as we look at this text, how do we see our own lives individually, and that as a congregation, how do, we, how do we stack up on the journey of discipleship, of learning this new way of thinking and this new way of living? We're gonna, uh, I'm going to restrict my thoughts this morning and my, my, uh, my use of this passage to just verses 17 and 18. We will come back to this. There's a lot more to be said on this topic, so what we're going to do this morning is in some ways introductory uh, to the latter half of this chapter. But I want to talk for a few minutes about uh, Paul challenging us to a new way of thinking. Look at verse 17, if you would, with me for just a second. Paul starts off and he says, thanks be to God. Now, now you've got to ask a couple of questions that I've tried to, to, to put them in a way that we can think about. Who is the focus of my worship? Who's the focus of my highest affections? Now, I'd like for us to actually think about that for just a minute. I realize we're in church, and anytime you get a question from you know, a Sunday school teacher or the pastor in, in, in church, the answer is Jesus. I understand that that's the knee-jerk reaction, right? The kid looking out the Sunday school window, sees a squirrel climbing up in a tree, and the teacher says, what are you looking at? He says, well, I know I'm supposed to say Jesus, but I really think it's a squirrel. Um, I, I know what you're supposed to say. I know what I'm supposed to say. But can we set that aside for just a minute, and can, can we talk a little bit? Who is the focus of my worship and my highest affections? More often than not, it's me. More often than not, I'm worried about taking care of me. That's the way a slave thinks. I've got to try and take care of me. I've got to make sure that, that I don't get hurt because nobody else will look out for me. 
Paul challenges us as he calls us to say, thanks be to God. There's, there's one who looks out for you, who cares for you. You've got to get your focus away from you and understand that, that the source of my salvation, the one who has accomplished victory over sin and death and on, in hell on my behalf is God himself. He is my source. He is my victory. He is, he is the one who has set me free. So Paul calls us to get our eyes and our thinking off of ourselves and to focus in the, in, in the way we should, in the manner in which we should, which is to focus on the grace of God in Christ Jesus because he knows something about us. He knows we like to take credit, don't we? We, we like to, to kind of say we've done something to deserve or to earn God's love. We like to, whether it's in spiritual things or in earthly things, we love to take the credit. A lot of you know I, I coach hockey uh, as, as a hobby and for fun, and, and this last year we had a really good hockey team. Uh, we, uh, we won all but two games, got further in the state playoffs than, than the team had ever gotten before. And, and we'd come in, most games we won, and, and I'd walk in after every game, and my speech was basically the same. I'd say something along the lines of, I continue to be astounded at the depth and the quality of the coaching on this hockey team. <laughs> now... The facts are we had two of the five highest scores in the city of St. Louis had nothing to do with my coaching. Well, we just had a ton of talent. But, but when, on the rare occasions when we lost, what was the speech? What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> How come you're not skating hard out there? Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? It's not my fault. It's your fault. We love to take the credit, and we don't want to take the blame. And so Paul says, why don't you just stop looking at yourself altogether and understand that the new way of thinking says focus on God. Thanks, be to him. Why does he deserve our thanks? Well, what else does he say in verse 17? He says this, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin. Now, I've put a couple of other verses up here just to reference, to to reinforce a little bit. Earlier in chapter 6, he says in talking about what Christ has done for us so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So he uses that same terminology. And if you go back, I don't know, eight or nine sermons ago to chapter five, he talks about the fact that while we were still weak, Christ died for us. That word weak uh, in the Greek language is literally a hospital word. It means that we were infirmed. It means that we were, that we were lying on our sickbed and we could do nothing to strengthen ourselves. The reason God is thanked, friends, is because we were once slaves to sin, but we're slaves no more. We cannot take credit for our salvation. We give God the credit. We were, apart from Christ, under the sin's dominion and its control and its power, we were helpless. The person who is sick and in bed and unable to rise cannot cure themselves. They need the physician to come and to offer assistance. This notion that we meet God halfway you know, God reaches down halfway and we reach up halfway and we both do our part and, and that's what accomplishes our salvation. You know, that, that might sell a lot of records. You know, Neil Diamond, uh, Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Show back in the 60s, right? You know, you reach one hand to your brother and then you reach the other hand to the man upstairs because that's what he's there for, right? Wrong. I can no more apart from Christ reach out to God for salvation. I have no inclination to seek him out for salvation any more than I can sprout wings and fly to the moon in front of your very eyes. We are enslaved. 
This idea that we have a free will apart from the power of Christ, that on my own strength and in my own wisdom, I can choose him and I can say I did my part for my salvation is blatantly unbiblical. There's no place in scripture that God tells us that we are so uh, unscarred by sin that our will has not been affected. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to do a little digging, you don't trust me, that's okay. Ephesians chapter 2, what does he say? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We had no spiritual ability to reach out and to take hold of God. If he doesn't reach down and take hold of us, we are lost. To suggest that I do my part and have some effort in my salvation would be the same as a a patient who has a critical heart issue and ends up getting open heart surgery and taking credit for part of the surgery. The only thing the person brings to the table, pardon the pun, is a broken heart. And yet we seem to insist that somehow we've worked our way out of slavery. And Paul says, God forbid. Thank God You who were once slaves, what, verse 18, have been set free from sin. I've shortened verses 7 and 18. That's not all of it, but that's the the main point. Someone has come to our rescue. Someone has done for you and for me, if we're followers of Christ, someone has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The champion has come and has saved the day, so to speak. Uh, a movie that I actually appreciate watching occasionally is not a movie I'm recommending to you. So don't hear me say, go home and watch this, okay? This is a very dark movie, but it has a message of redemption. Denzel Washington a few years ago came out and starred in a movie called Man on Fire. And he played a man who I think was like an ex-CIA agent or something, but he had, he had blood on his hands. And, and he felt guilt and he felt shame to the point that he was drinking himself into oblivion. And a friend of his comes along and gets him a job as a bodyguard uh, of a little girl who's about eight years old. And the story is about their relationship and and what happens to both her and to him in the process. One of the things that happens in the movie is that she's kidnapped. They're in Mexico City. She's kidnapped. And and for a while, you even think that that she's dead. And as the story moves on, uh, and and as she's kidnapped, Denzel Washington, his character is... uh, um, is uh, wounded almost mortally in the, in the exchange of gunfire, but he, he revives enough to go and to find her and to save her. And here's this little girl who's completely helpless. Her hands are bound. She has a blindfold on her eyes every day. She's not allowed to go anywhere without these large captors looming over her, but Denzel Washington's character comes to her rescue. And at, at the height of the movie is when they meet on the bridge where Washington is trading his life for hers. And she's hugging him and she's saying, are you okay? Are you okay? I knew you'd come for me. He says, it's going to be all right. You go now. Look, there's your mom. You go run. Go be with your mama. It's going to be all right. And then he exchanges his life for her. She was enslaved. She couldn't get away from her captors. And yet the hero came and did what only the hero could do. And God says, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you got to learn to think in proper terms about your salvation, about your condition before Christ and about your condition afterwards because you were entangled and enmeshed in sin and you needed to be rescued and God sent his son so that you could have new life. He is the one who rescues helpless and needy sinners. Now, friends, if we get this, 
I, I got to tell you, I, you know, I'm, I don't know that I'm an extraordinary emotional preacher, but this is really cool. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Think about this. If we begin to understand how deeply the grace of God has gone to save us, what will that do? It will not only revolutionize the way we think, but it will revolutionize the way in which we live, which is what Paul wants to address next. We will become a people of infectious grace. So if you take this statement, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves to sin have been set free. How do we apply that freedom? Now, okay, I'm going to start thinking that way. I'm going to start letting that be in control of my reasoning. How does it work its way out in our lives? Well, look at verse 17. You have become obedient. How? Obedient from the heart. If you like to underline in your Bible, I would underline obedient from the heart because now there's a new motivation. I'm no longer driven by guilt, by a burdensome duty, or by shame, but rather I'm driven by the the, the reaction to God's grace that makes me joyful, that makes me thankful, that makes me want to share it with others. As much as I want everybody in this room to get involved in the children's ministry of our church, if you're going to get involved because you feel guilty about not being involved, you get a free pass. Please don't do it. I'm begging you because I don't want you to pass that guilt, which is not of Christ, onto our children. And, and I don't mean to be condescending. And, and, I, and, and I'm, I go to the back table and get a cookie, even if you don't want to teach but don't do it out of guilt because Jesus isn't in that. But then I would ask you to go back and look into your heart and say, why is that guilt still there? If you are in Christ, it doesn't need to be. Your motivations can change. It's not guilt and duty and shame. It's a new way of living. I love this phrase in our mission statement. We always talk about planting churches and renewing communities uh, and growing disciples, but, it's, but we start off our mission statement by saying we want to serve Jesus in joyful obedience, not because we have to, but because we get to. I mean, do you really think Beth Bulma felt bad she had to stand up here and talk to you about kids this morning? Do you really think that wasn't any fun for her? I know she didn't like to speak in front of people. I know she probably would, you know, her stomach was probably upset all last night, but, but did you see the excitement? Did you see the joy? Our guys that organized 2028, 2028's a month away almost, and they've been passing emails around, hundreds of them. And I'm looking at all these emails, I'm getting dizzy. They're so excited about figuring out a way that service can actually bring the gospel to people. Why? Because there's a new way of living based on a new way of thinking. Has it worked its way down into my life? Has my reaction to the grace of God given me a new outlook on my neighbors, on my friends, on, on, on fellow students in my high school perhaps? Am I applying it to my marriage? Is the gospel changing me and making me a different kind of husband that doesn't insist on his wife doing everything the way he wants, but actually seeks to serve his wife? I got about a C minus in that this week. So he'd probably say I'm being gracious to myself. If it doesn't work its way down into my hands and my feet, there's still, I'm, I'm on the journey of learning. I may be slipping back momentarily into that slave mentality. I asked you if we care about our neighbors. I walked into Einstein this morning at about 6 o'clock, and Mark, who's the manager there, a lot of you probably know Mark, uh, if you go over the Einsteins on South Kirkwood Road, um, he was there, and, and I walked in. There was nobody in Einstein. Now, there's rarely anybody. Uh, you know, there's not a crowd there at 6 in the morning. On Sundays, there's usually two or three people. And I walk in. I'm the only guy there. I'm like, this is cool. It's like my own private Einstein's bagel place. So I walk in, and I, and I go up to the counter, and Mark looks at me. and goes, okay, give it to me. Give it to you. Give you what? He goes, give me the sermon. What's the sermon on today? I said, you got it. 
how much do you have to do with your salvation? He goes, everything. I said, wrong, nothing. <laughs> and he kind of looked back, and I said, but that's good news. Because if God really did do for you what he says, which is send his son to die for you to pay for your sins, and you and I start to get our minds around that, we'll change the entire Kirkwood community all by ourselves if we really live that truth in our lives because we'll care about everybody. That's the sermon. I said, now my congregation would probably be glad if I did it that way with them and they could come over here and get a bagel a whole lot quicker. You, he got the edited version, you get the short version. But point being, has it worked this way down into my life so, so that when I see my friends... I'm concerned about their spiritual well-being. I wouldn't be in rude or obnoxious with them. We're buddies. We, we talk all the time. But do I love them enough to say, you know, I, I, I'll answer your question. Do I, do I even have friends that don't know Christ? Have I so insulated myself with Christian friends that I don't even know any people that don't know Jesus? There's a new way of living that comes out of a thankful heart to God. And one of the aspects of this new way of living is found in verse 18, where Paul says, actually what's happened, friends, is you have become slaves to righteousness. And notice he gives us uh, the credit there. <laughs> he says, because God's working in your heart, it clicked with you. You got it. And it's not that you want to be free out from under the law. It's not that you want to just run around and do whatever you want to and, and, and just have evil behavior and, behavior and not have to worry about consequences, but rather you become a slave to righteousness. Before you were driven to sin, you were compelled to reject Christ, to rebel against him. But now in Christ, we are compelled. We are enraptured by his love. We want to give ourselves to him as our Savior and as our Lord. He's building on this idea of obedient from the heart. It's an about face. We no longer want to run from God, but we want to run to him. And then we want to be used by him as his instruments to take his righteousness. And remember all along, keep in mind the, the definition of righteousness, God's perfect justice, his wrath against sin is part of his righteousness and his perfect mercy and his perfect grace, his compassion for sinners like you and me, those came together at the cross and only God could put it together. And then only God could offer us salvation in Jesus because the price was paid. And we get to go and be slaves to that message. You're gonna be enslaved to something, friends. No way around it. Your own sinful passions or a glorious relationship with God that leads us to want to take that message to the little kids that were just running up and down in these aisles, to our family members that maybe we're going to go have Mother's Day brunch with in a little while, to our business partner, to the doctor that's in my practice with me, to the kid that sits across from me in algebra class. That way of thinking, I am a new person. I've been set free in Christ. Because of his grace, I can now embrace a slavery to righteousness. In other words, thinking begets living. I think Booker T. Washington represented an entire generation of men and women and children trying to embrace a new way of thinking and a new way of living as free men and women. I think disciples of Jesus have, in a spiritual sense, that same learning curve. We're on that same freedom trail. It is a journey. We have been set free in Christ. We're new creatures in him. Do we think that way? Do we live that way? Let's pray.